we're going to continue today a study that we launched last week uh, called Praise the Lord, the, way, the Wonder, the Ways, and the Warfare of Worship. And uh, worship is a, it's a, such an important part of our, of our life in Jesus. It's an important part of our life together as a church family. And, and yet, often, uh, we just, I'm not saying we, we don't have, it doesn't have meaning. I'm not saying that we just mindlessly worship. That's not the case at all. But I mean, we often are engaged in worship uh, and practices in worship that we've lost, uh, we don't have a, a current present in the moment of understanding of why we do it. And anything that we're involved in that we don't, uh, that isn't rooted in an understanding of uh, the scriptural basis for it just becomes habit or just religious practice after a while. We can't afford to let that happen with our worship life. And so it's been uh, at least eight years since I have spent any time on Sunday mornings with our congregation uh, going to the scriptures and finding out what it has to say about worship, and that's the reason why I felt it was past time for us to, to, to do that again. So, last week we talked about the wonder of worship. What is the wonder of worship? It is that God would visit us. That God would be present among us when we worship Him. That's an amazing thought, and more of an amazing experience. When we lift up honor to God, that He is here. Not just emo, you know, not just ha- we're not just having some sort of an emotional high. It's not just some sort of theological, a theoretical possibility. It is that God is present. He says He's enthroned. He inhabits the praises of His people. So as we've worshiped the Lord today, He's been faithful. To keep his part of that bargain. He is here. And today we're going to talk about the ways we worship. Some of the ways we worship. And why we do what we do in worship. And we're going to read from Mark chapter 12. The gospel of Mark chapter 12. It's the second book in the New Testament. And uh, if you've got a. If you're uh, like a lot of us. And not sure how to navigate the Bible. Use the table of contents. Great resource. It'll get you to Mark. And then chapter 12, and we're going to start reading at verse 28 in just a moment. In fact, that moment is right now. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, the he and the him that's being talked about here is Jesus, when he had, when the scribe perceived that he, Jesus, had answered them well, He asked him, Jesus, this question, which is the first commandment of all? He's he's asking, what is the greatest commandment of all? Let me give you the backstory. So the uh, religious leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, they've teed up um, what they think is an assault that's going to bring Jesus down. They're going to trip him up. They're going to give him a question he can't answer or can't answer in a way that isn't going to turn people against him. They're certain they've got him trapped. So uh, the Pharisees are up to bat first, and uh, Jesus strikes them out. They whiff. Then the Sadducees step up, and they think they've got the, an- the question that's going to just undo Jesus, and you know 
He's no, they're no match for him. Jesus has just been leveling them. They're out of bullets. And so this, this guy who's a scribe, now the scribes were, uh, they were the keepers of the word of God. They were the ones who not only transcribed, which is where that word comes from, the, the scriptures, but they also memorized it. They were the experts on what the Bible had to say, that kind of thing. And so the Pharisees had their shot. The Sadducees had their shot. They're religious sects, and they've, they've, they've taken their shot at Jesus. He's masterfully uh, weathered that, that assault. It was nothing. Now the scribe steps up. They, they send their best to the plate. He takes a few practice swings, and he's ready to go. And he asks what he thinks is the, the ultimate question that's going to turn the crowd against Jesus. He says, which is the greatest commandment? The reason he thinks he's got Jesus now is because there's ten commandments. And he figures whatever Jesus uh, says is the greatest commandment, nine-tenths of the people are going to have an argument with him about that. So he thinks for sure he's got him trapped. And besides, that, this has been an ongoing debate among religious people. And how many of you know religious people can get into debates about stuff that doesn't usually matter, right? And so th this has been a debate among the religious people for, you know, since Moses, which is the greatest of the commandments. Like, it matters, right? But th this is the kinds of things they focus on. So he shoots out there, which is the... First of the greatest commandment. And then Jesus answered in verse 29. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And he doesn't even, he doesn't even point to one of the Ten Commandments. He actually goes to another place in the books of Moses and says this summarizes the Ten Commandments. This is the greatest commandment. And, and the scribe who you know, thought he was going to knock this one out of the park is standing there and the ball has just passed him by. And then Jesus says this. And the second, you haven't asked me this, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. The second of the commands is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The whole of the, ten, of the Ten Commandments is summarized in these. So the scribe said to him, Well, well said, teacher. <laughs> you have spoken the truth, for there's one God and there is no other but he. And they all, they all uh, go home empty-handed that day because Jesus is God. Now, the reason I brought you here is not for the drama of that whole scene unfolding. It's because of what Jesus said. The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord. Worship the Lord with all your heart. Not part of your heart. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. And all your strength. That's the first, the greatest commandment. Love God. Worship God with all your heart. All your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Basically, what he's saying is love God with everything you are and everything you've got. Now listen, in every other faith, every other religion, every other sect, and I'm using the word other, and it bugs me because it's, it's forming a comparison that is really, there is no comparison. 
okay? But every other sect, every other religion, every other faith, worship of God is all about appeasing an angry God or scoring points with that God or getting him off your back. It has to do, you know, with some egotistical God up there who wants to be worshipped. And sometimes we think when we read stuff like this that that's a description of how our God is. You're not loving me with all your heart. Come on, get with it. All your heart, all your soul, right? We think that, that, that that's God's, uh, that he wants something from us in worship. Listen, if God's ego is that, if he's got such a problem with his ego, he's not worth worshiping, first of all. He's not God. So that's not the thing. In fact, when God commands us to worship him, it's for our sake. It's for our benefit. Now, I'm not saying that we come to worship with a, uh, a, a selfish point of view or that we don't come to, to worship. He's worthy of our praise, okay? He's always worthy of our worship with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But God invites us into that not for his own sake, but for ours. And I want to explain that to you today if I can. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, it's for me. It's for you. We're the ones who benefit from that. I'm going to take you back to the Garden of Eden. Some of you know this story, I think. Adam and Eve sinned against God. He said, the day you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. Don't do it. Don't do it. But we did it. Now, Adam and Eve did not drop dead physically in that moment, and yet they did die, because there's more than one way to die. You are spirit, soul, and body. That day, their spirit died. Yes, they continued to live physically. They continued to live emotionally. They continued to live um, intellectually. But at the core of their being, they were cut off from the life of God, and they did that themselves. We did that to ourselves. And what we were left with what remains is simply a husk of what God intended for our lives to be like. Uh, years ago, I was cleaning out our garage, and I came across these flowers that were hanging upside down. And I thought, uh, what is that? I asked my wife, what are those things out there? And she said, oh, well, I'm drying some flowers. Well, why would you do that? Well, because we make dried flower arrangements. And then I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, we have, you know, a dried flower arrangement, this lovely little thing that sits on our table in the, in the living room. And I guess that's where these things come from. Okay, I get it. And I guess when you hang them upside down, it retains, am I getting this right? It retains some of the color or whatever. You don't know? Okay. <laughs> you just follow the directions. Okay, well, let's get that. Anyway, I guess that's how you're supposed to do it. And, and the result is you can create a lovely arrangement out of these dried flowers, but can I tell you what? They don't stand. They, there's no, nothing that compares even, they don't even come close to a, a living flower, the rose bushes in front of your house that have the vibrant color and shape and smell of life. There's nothing that compares to a dried flower and that, no comparison whatsoever. What has been left to us since the life of God has been cut off to us as shriveled up husks. Now we try to beautify it as best we can, but it's just, you know, dried up husks. 
But when Jesus gets a hold of us, when you came to him in faith, you crossed that boundary from doubt into faith and received Christ Jesus as your Savior, we were plugged back into the life of God. And his life began to flow to me, first in my spirit, then in my soul, and ultimately even to my body. His life is re being restored to me. Some of you will remember the... the uh, uh, the television show, uh, what was it called? Um, Extreme Makeover, right? Some of you remember that? Extreme, Extreme Makeover? Really? I'm the only one? Come on, really? We don't want to admit it. <laughs> okay, uh, I get that. All right, uh, you don't even put your hands down. I, don't, I didn't see. And I can only say that I watched it maybe a couple of times. But I got the gist of it. You have a person who's got some physical problems, you know, and, and so they, they'll, do, uh, they'll do plastic surgery. They'll do oral surgery. They'll get them on weight loss and bodybuilding. They'll, um, you know, help them with their hair and their makeup and their wardrobe and all this stuff. And then comes reveal day, you know. They isolate them for a while from their family and friends and the people who know them until, you know, all of this stuff is, you know, beautified and fixed up and all that stuff and then comes reveal day and it's as the you know the curtain goes up and their friends go oh, you know the intake of air as they go oh my right imagine if you were the uh, the person who is you know the beneficiary of all that and you have been kept from any mirrors so you haven't seen yourself either as this transformation has been taking place in your life. And then comes reveal day and not only are your friends seeing you in this transformed state, but you see yourself in this transformed state. It'd be like, oh my goodness. Look, you and I have been in a process of extreme makeover. It's still going on, but God has done a lot. And we're so close to it, we often don't see it until we worship the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And in that process, it's as though the curtain is coming up, the mirror is brought in front of us, and we go, oh my, what God has done. Let's talk about that for a minute. To worship the Lord with all your heart means to worship the Lord from your spirit. The fact that there's any part of me that resonates with the life of God, that there's any part of me that is in communication with God Almighty is a miracle. I'm a sinner. I was, by reason of my sin, cut off from God. But the fact that there's any part of me that is alive unto God is a miracle beyond Belief and beyond description. So when I worship the Lord out of my spirit, the curtain is coming up on something that's an amazing thing. You mean I am alive spiritually? Oh my, what a good God we have. Jesus restores our spiritual life and worship is First and foremost, spiritual. By the way, I'm not giving you... Uh, I've got a ton of references that, you know, underlies a lot of the things I'm saying today, but I'm not giving you those, those references. You'll get them in your notes in Microchurch this week. Worship is spiritual. 
and I worship the Lord out of my regenerated spirit, and when I do, it's unveiling this marvelous work of God in me. When I worship the Lord, when I love him with all my soul, what does that mean? That means, well, among other things, revived emotions. You know, one of the things that has gotten screwed up because of sin is our ability to emote. Our emotions uh, get really messed up so that we, we, um, we find ourselves either over-emoting or under-emoting or emoting in ways that are inconsistent with the moment. It's just, you know, a lot of the drama that we experience and stuff is just weird. It doesn't work right. Now, you know, in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said this. He says, we don't sorrow like people who have no hope. So he says, okay, there's a, there's a sorrow that's, um, uh, that's appropriate, uh, an emotion, that's an emoting word, it's an emotional word, sorrow. There's a sorrow that we as believers have, but it's not the same as the sorrow of those who don't know Christ. There's hope in our sorrow. Over here, there's just hopelessness. So, so Paul is saying, look, the work of God is restoring my life, is helping me to feel things differently and appropriately and in a godly way so that my emotions are under his control, not the control of my circumstances, not the control of my fallen nature. And we are invited, the Bible says, to worship God with all of our souls. In fact, the Bible says, worship the Lord with, with joy. In fact, there's a place in the Bible where it says, rejoice in the Lord. And in case you didn't hear me the first time, again I say rejoice. That's an emotion. And when we rejoice in the Lord, it's clear and clean and vibrant in every way. It isn't tainted by the, the ungodliness that has, has wrecked so much of our lives. We're encouraged to worship the Lord in hope. That's an emotion. In triumph, that's another emotional word. The Bible calls us to. And when I do, when I worship the Lord emotionally, and I get that, that a lot of churches and Christians make it seem as though if you worship emotionally, you're somehow a fanatic. And look, there is a thing called fanaticism. And that isn't good. That's just people who, who have not had their emotional life uh, reconnected to the life of God yet. And so they'll do things that are inappropriate and weird and all that. But that isn't what we're talking about. When I am free to worship God with restored, renewed, revived emotions, it's as, as though the curtain's coming up and I'm seeing, wow, what, what an amazing God we have. This is, what is he doing? all the wonderful things he's done in my life. When I worship the Lord or love the Lord with all my mind, what is that talking about? Well, it's talking about your intellect, obviously. You know, the Bible in Romans chapter 1 says that we as a human race, we think we're really smart. Don't we? Don't we think we're so smart? And the Bible says you're just fools. Why? Because we have forsaken the one who is the foundation of all, intel all intelligence, all wisdom. You know, six years ago when uh, Sue was wheeled into the emergency 
operating room and I wasn't sure I was going to see her again. Can I tell you, I didn't get on the, fall, on the phone and call Alan to perform surgery on her. <laughs> I needed an expert. In fact, we got three of them, the best that Kaiser has to offer. When we need intelligence, we want the expert. And yet, <laughs> we as a human race, when it comes to our intellectual pursuits, as though we want to avoid the expert. I don't want to, I don't want to talk to you, God. I know, you know, you don't exist. I'm going to consult my microscope. I'm going to consult my computer. I'm going to consult other people. How, how much sense does that make, really? The Bible says that the beginning place, the foundation of wisdom, is the fear or respect or reverence of God. You start there. If you want to build true intelligence, you start there. God made it all. He knows everything. And he's willing and waiting and loves to reveal it to us. He's not hiding anything from us. He wants for us to grow. God gets pleasure when you use this thing up here. He made it to be. Listen, think about Adam before the fall, before sin. Now, uh, let me back up from that. I'll bring you back to there in a second. But how how do we learn stuff? Intelligence is built on previous intelligence. So if I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then another guy can come along and say, well, because that's true, 4 plus 4 must equal 8. And then there's another thing, another layer of intelligence that comes on that. It gets built, you know, one, one understanding of something gets, makes room for another understanding of something. And somewhere along the line, you get an iPod, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> we build our understanding that way. Now here's Adam. He's starting from scratch. There's no previous record of, you know, to build on. He doesn't have a computer. He's He's just on his own, just him and his little old brain. And God says to him, Adam, you see this great creation of mine? I'd like you to catalog it all. You name all the creatures. You, can you imagine the immensity of that project, the overwhelming na- intellectual nature of what he's being called to do? And yet Adam steps up and does it. Why? Because the pre-fallen intelligence of man was far beyond anything we know right now. Sin has corrupted even our ability to think. So when I come to the place where I, I engage my intelligence in the worship of God, when I take a moment and I, I think through what I want to say to him. When I, and there, I'll catch myself sometimes. Maybe you do this too. Or I just say the same old things to God over and over again. And I don't think that it's, we have a God in heaven who's just like, no, I'm tired of that. Will you come up with something else? It's not that. But I think God delights when I extend my intellect. To look for phrases and words and, and uh, concepts to use in describing how I feel about him and who he is. And when I do, it's like the curtain's going up and there's something being revealed of God restoring even my intellect. We're to, let, me, let me ask you this. What if I said to you, Annie, right now, why don't you step right up here 
I want you, don't do it, but I'm just, if, you, if I did, if I said, Annie, step right up here, and I want you to right now, on the spot, to compose a song, teach it to us, we're all going to sing it. I'd probably have trouble getting you up here. <laughs> and yet the Bible says that over and over. Sing a new song to the Lord. Oh, that's a, that's a monumental intellectual pursuit. But the Lord is calling us to expand into what he has been accomplishing even in our intelligence. The Bible calls us to declare uh, our worship to the Lord. It's like I was describing earlier where we wrap phrases and concepts around our desires and love for God that we expressed. And I think that requires intelligence. When I think about the many times the scripture says to play instruments to the Lord. When we do that, that's, that involves intelligence. And so you get the point. Finally, the Bible says, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Part of what God has been doing in your life since you encountered the gospel, if you have, if you have crossed from doubt into faith and given your life to Jesus, part of what he's been doing is rededicating your body. Sin devalues the flesh. I don't suggest you do this, but you could visit any red light district in any city around the world, and the first thing you'd see is that sin devalues the flesh. But God, but God is at work recovering even our physicality, ennobling our bodies, so that they're not something to be ashamed of, that they don't serve the, the enemy of our souls. They end up being employed in the service of God. In fact, the Bible says in the end there's going to be a resurrection of our bodies. He's not going to leave our bodies out of the resurrection. He cares about that. And so the Bible says, clap our hands. And when we do, we're expressing appreciation to him. It says, stand. And when we do, we're honoring him. He says, kneel. And when we kneel, it's a symbol of our respect. When we raise our heads, as it says to do from time to time, it's, it's acknowledging the security that I have in you. I don't have to hide from you. I can stand before you secure in your love. When I lift my hands, it's a symbol of the openness, surrender, and the embrace that I have towards you. When I dance, it's an expression of joy. These are all things the Bible says to do. Why? To make a scene? No. Because the curtain goes up and we get to see, wow, God is, God is at work doing amazing things, even rededicating my body to the purposes for which it was designed. It's an amazing thing. And worship is God blessing us in that way. This is recording number 11127 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, October 19, 2014. This is the second message in a series by Randy Bolt titled, Praise the Lord. This message is titled, The Ways of Worship.